so good to have you here as we join online, and we're going on week six, and we're just so happy to have all of you here. If this is your first week joining us, we want to say a special welcome to you and remind you that even during this time when we're apart, this is a great time to invite people to church. Just this past week, I had two of my friends that I'd invited for a while. They joined us online, and we, it's just such an exciting thing to see the beauty and the reality of Jesus be shared by all uh, all people and by more people and the people that you care about. And at the heart of what we do as a church, our mission is to introduce people to Jesus and follow him together. And so um, this is a great time to invite. And although we all long to be back together, please invite your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, those people you care about. And in some ways, this is the easiest time for people to join church than it ever has been. They don't have to walk through the doors. They don't have to see anybody else. They get a perfect feel of what it looks like to be a part of LifeSpring Community Church and to see and experience the beauty and love of Jesus. Because how do people do that? through experiencing the people who claim to follow Jesus. And so please continue to invite, continue to help us with our mission. I also want to say a special thank you uh, to all of you who've been giving to the church during this time. The outpouring of giving has been incredible. In some ways, uh, this has been better giving than we've seen a lot of times in the year, and we are just so grateful. But I want to say a special thank you to those who've given to our Good Samaritan Fund that specifically goes to help people in need. We've already uh, done re- uh, in, we've already dispersed, that's the word I'm looking for, we've already dispersed to seven different households, and we are actively looking to help people during this time. And if you have needs or you need help, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We have resources and and people are sacrificially giving so that people who have needs would be able to meet their obligations and to feed their families. And this is something that has never happened before in any of our lifetimes. And the church is a place that wants to help. And so if you have needs, reach out to us. Uh, you can email info at lifespringcc.com and we will get the email and uh, let us know of your specific need. And if you have the ability to continue to give, give to our Good Samaritan Fund so we can continue to meet these needs within the life of our congregation and body. Before I get right into the sermon, I also want to invite you to one last thing. On Wednesday evenings, I have uh, started a prayer meeting. I'm going to be on week four this Sunday or this coming Wednesday night. It's every Wednesday at seven o'clock. You can get it on our Facebook uh, page at LifeSpring, our LifeSpring Facebook page. And right now we're just going through a great series on unity. And one of the great enemies of unity is doctrine. And we're looking at the subject specifically of false teaching. And, you know, we're looking at um, what it is and what it isn't. And so many times throughout the history of the church, and whether it's thousands and hundreds of years ago, or whether it's right now, people have been accusing each other of false teaching and heresy and being a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it's all just crazy. And so we need to look at the Bible and see what does the Bible define as false teaching so that we can be unified. And so I'm really excited about that series. It's, it's new stuff that I've put together, and I'd love to have you join us. And of course, if you have prayer requests, we're also praying on behalf of the church. We're praying for all the requests that are coming into the church specifically during this time. And I will be praying for those on Wednesday nights. And so if you have a prayer request, same deal. Send it to info at lifespringcc.com, and we'll make sure our congregation knows of the things that are on your heart so we can be praying for you. But this morning, we start a brand new series entitled What Now? And it's a series that corresponds with the liturgical season of Easter. In some traditions, ours included, we don't really follow the church calendar, but 
If you've been coming to our church for a little bit, you'll know that we've made an intentional effort to enter into the life of the church calendar during this past year, starting with Advent. And we are now at the season of Easter. For many churches in our tradition, we look at Easter as a Sunday event of the, where we celebrate the resurrection and then we move into our normal routines. But in the church calendar, Easter is a season that comes after the holy day of Easter, and it lasts for 50 days after Easter. That is a time when Christians are meant to center their lives around the reality that Jesus is risen from the dead, that he appeared to us, that he spent 40 days with his disciples, and the time of Easter actually concludes with Pentecost, which this year is May 31st, and which we'll be celebrating on that day. Now, what do we celebrate during the liturgical season of Easter? We celebrate not on one Sunday, but on six additional Sundays that Jesus rose from the dead, not as an abstract theological reality, but as a concrete physical reality that he actually was seen, taught, touched, Eight, that he physically in existence rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. He appeared to others. They saw him for 40 days. And so these next six weeks, we are going to take a look at the six major appearances of Jesus, what he said, what he did, who he interacted with during that time which he, in which he rose from the dead. And for 40 days, he spent time before he ascended to his father. So what did he do? What did he do? And in some ways, he gave us his marching orders during that time. We've entitled this series, What Now? Because if we are not careful, Easter can feel like a singular event, which we just, just then eat our ham, you know, and then we move on with the rest of life. You know, we take our pictures, we wear our bonnets, we eat our ham, we eat our hot cross buns. I made some hot cross buns this year. They were pretty good. I need to work on my frosting skills. You know, my frosting didn't stay that good cross, but you don't care about that, you know? Easter can feel like a day, and it's not meant to be. It's meant to be a season. It's meant to be a daily reminder that Jesus has risen from the dead. So what now? What do we do now? During these six weeks, you're going to see that the what now is fairly repetitive. You're going to see that what Jesus said and did was fairly repetitive, although he did it and said it to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, and their experience of Jesus was different. And yet the same message and the same impetus that Jesus gave us is the same. And today we start with the very first account of Jesus rising from the dead and having an interaction with a living human being, one of his followers, one of his close friends, one of the people that was most involved in financing the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus appeared to a woman, Mary Magdalene, a woman, Mary Magdalene. And the story is told for us in Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. And I just want to read it for you now and jump right in. And here it is. This is the very first account of when Jesus rose from the dead and he met with somebody, a person, one-on-one, -on -one, for the first time since he risen from the dead. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she replied, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, 
she turned around and she saw Jesus. And he was standing there, but she didn't even realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? And what is it you are looking for? And Mary, thinking he was the gardener, said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, and it's one word, Mary. She turned to him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus says, said, do not hold on to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and she told the disciples the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now this morning, we're going to see three things from this text. Three things. <laughs> and they're all about recognition. They're all about recognition we're going to see first, it's super easy to not recognize Jesus, even when he's standing right next to you. We're going to see second, that even after we have recognized him, that we all recognize him in different ways. Even after we've recognized him, that he appears and the way that all of us recognize him is different. And it happens in different ways to different people. And third, that even after we've recognized him, it is possible to miss what we're supposed to do about it, the what now. So let's get right into it. First, we see in this scene in John chapter 20, verse 11, that it begins with Mary Magdalene returning to the tomb of Jesus. Now, this is the second time she's been there. If you read John 20, verses 1 through 10, you'll see that Mary Magdalene was the first to go to the tomb, discover it empty, and then she ran back and told the disciples. She didn't see any angels. She didn't see Jesus. She's the first at the tomb, the first to see it empty, and she runs back to tell Peter and John. Now, Peter and John rushed to the tomb, and apparently, although we're not told it's John, we assume because the gospel writer says the one whom uh, Jesus loved, you know. And apparently he was faster than Peter. And he gets there first and he sees the grave clothes and he believes. Apparently Peter does not. And they leave. And although John believed, he didn't tell anybody about his belief. You know, have you ever believed, but you're not sure you want it to be out there quite yet? I think that's John. <laughs> And maybe it's something that you believe, it's not even spiritual, but you know, you believe it, but you don't really want anybody to know. You're kind of embarrassed, you're not, you may be sure you're right exactly. You believe, but you kind of believe. And then Mary comes back. And what is she doing at the tomb in verse 11 of chapter 20? She's weeping. She believes that Jesus has died, and she believes that his grave has been uh, robbed, and that grave robbers have stolen his body. And she comes back and she's weeping. And it, it, she's weeping um, because she misses her Savior. It's the same reason that a lot of people go to the cemetery, you know. Uh, and they go to the tomb of the deceased that they love and they just sit by it. It's not because they can actually spend time with the deceased. But, but it's the closest they feel like they can get. There's such comfort in that. And yet Mary doesn't know where Jesus's body is. She assumes that it's somewhere. She does not believe that he's risen from the dead. She doesn't know where it is. 
She's in, in terrible grief because the one that she followed and loved deeply and was devoted to, and she's still devoted here, he's now gone. And she doesn't even know how to process all of this. And so she is weeping. And as she's at the tomb weeping, these two angels come. But you know what? I'm convinced Mary doesn't even know that the angels are there. At least that's the presentation the way John makes it. The angels say to her, woman, why are you crying? Woman, why are you crying? And Mary just responds. Now, every single time practically in the Bible that an angel appears, what does the person that the angel appears to do? They fall to their feet in terrible fear. But Mary doesn't have any of that here. These two men that are robed in white appear at the tomb, and they're angelic, and John tells us this, the gospel writer, and Mary doesn't even hardly respond. I'm crying because they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've put his body. I envision it almost as if Mary is there weeping, and she doesn't even turn to look at those who spoke to her. And then she turns physically, the text tells us, in the other direction, and she sees somebody else is there. And we know that someone else is Jesus, verse 14, because the narrator, John, the gospel writer, tells us who it is. And Jesus says, woman, why are you crying and who are you looking for? Why are you crying and who are you looking for? And Mary says the same thing to Jesus. They've carried my Lord away, and I don't know where he is. Tell me where he, if you know, tell me where he is, right? If you know, tell me. If you know, tell me. You see, Mary does not recognize the angels and she doesn't recognize Jesus because the circumstances of our life, whether it be pain or pleasure, can prevent us from recognizing him. The circumstances of our life can rec prevent us from recognizing Jesus whether that's pain or pleasure. Now here we obviously are dealing with pain, but I think pleasure can do the same thing. In other words, Jesus can be right there in your life, present, and you may not even know it because you are allowing the circumstances and the beliefs of your heart to crowd out his presence in your life. This theme of non-recognition is actually a major theme in the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus. In fact, in the next, this week, in the next three weeks, it's going to be a major theme as Jesus starts to appear to new people. First, this week, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus, and she comes to recognize him by him saying her names. Next week, we're going to look at a story where Jesus appears to two men who were disciples of Jesus, not one of the inner disciples, the 12, the ones that are well known. And he appears to them on the road to Emmaus, and although they are walking right beside him, they don't recognize him until finally they invite him home and they share a meal together and Jesus breaks the bread and all of a sudden they recognize him. After that, Jesus appears to the disciples in an upper room and they think he's a ghost at first. They don't recognize him. And after that, Jesus appears on a beach and the disciples are far away and Jesus hails them from the, the beach and finally it is only through a miraculous event of them catching all these fish after the stranger on the beach tells them what to do, that they recognize his presence. Non-recognition. Non-recognition. You see, Mary doesn't miss the presence of Jesus because she lacks devotion. Mary does not recognize the presence of Jesus because she believes that Jesus can't 
possibly show up into her life now that he's been killed. Because her view of who Jesus is, although she is intensely devoted to Jesus, is not even capture how big and powerful and wonderful and beautiful Jesus is. And I know that's the same for us. And that's the tricky part about blindness, right? How can we diagnose where we are blind? Because we're blind to it. And yet, it is Jesus that comes into our life and stops our blindness. And here, he does it with a single word. Her name. And all in one instance, all of her anguish and her pain is replaced with delight and astonishment. It's all replaced. But I don't think all of her her lack of understanding is replaced. She's gone from a place of not recognizing Jesus to now she recognizes him. And this recognition of Jesus happens to all kinds of different people, and it happens to us in all kinds of different ways. But notice that it always happens to people in a personal way. Always happens to us in a personal, relational way. Notice even in the text, when Mary recognizes Jesus for the first time, she really doesn't say something really profound and theological, right? One commentator I read, D.A. Carson, said, Mary's initial reaction and recognition of Jesus does not lead, lead off with high Christology, you know, theology. My Savior and my God, what does she say? She says the same thing, the same title she'd always said to Jesus. Rabboni, my teacher. It happens in a personal way, not a theological way. It doesn't mean that theology doesn't matter. Of course, it matters a great deal. It means that when we experience Jesus truly, we experience him personally. Have you ever known a person, and maybe you, you could tend towards this if you're not careful. Have you ever known a person who is so academic in their relationship with God that there's no emotion to it, that there's no heartfelt emotion towards what God has done in their life, and that everything with their relationship with God is simply in the head, and it never touches and transforms their emotion. It never softens their heart. It never makes them humble. It never makes them more loving to other people. When we've experienced Jesus, we experience it in a relational way. We experience him in all kinds of different ways, and Jesus is experienced by all kinds of different people. But when it happens, it will be personal and it will be relational. And so what does Mary do after she experiences and recognizes Jesus? She's moved from a place where she didn't recognize, now she does. And in her recognition, her recognition happens in a personal way. And now what does she do? She clings to Jesus, right? The picture is almost as if, imagine that you're, you're a mom, and you're a mom, and your son goes off to war, and you receive a letter saying your son has been killed in battle, but all of a sudden he comes home. A mistake was made, you know, an administration error. And now there's your son, who you didn't think you would ever see again, but now he's back. This is kind of the emotional setting that Mary is in. What would that mother do with her son that she thought was dead, who now has returned? She'd run to him with tears in her eyes. She'd hold on to him, and she would never want to let go. And the son would finally have to say to Mom, it's okay. It was a mistake. I'm alive. I'm here. You can let go of me now. You know? You can let go of me now. 
And Mary clings to Jesus. And Jesus, with the gentlest kind of reproof in the entire scripture, says, you know, Mary, don't hold on to me. See that in verse 17? Mary, don't hold on to me. The reproof isn't about touching. It's not like Jesus in his post-resurrection body has a problem with PDA, you know, personal displays of affection. In fact, we are told that Jesus recommends Thomas touch him because Thomas doesn't believe Jesus has risen from the dead. And he, sa he says in the text that we're going to look at next week, just 10 verses from this one, John 20, verse 27, touch my hands and touch my sides. Jesus' reproof here is not a reproof against touching his post-resurrection body. The reproof, the reproof is all about the reality that Jesus is, is really back. He's really risen from the dead. And letting go of him is not going to make him all of a sudden disappear. Remember that mom who's seen her, her thought-to-be-dead son come back. Letting go of him is not going to make him disappear. And yet, Mary is misunderstood in two ways, right? Because letting go of Jesus will not make him disappear, and yet Jesus has told them that he's only here for a short time and that soon he will ascend to his Father. And he says it in the most personal and beautiful language here. I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And so go and tell my disciples. You see, in Mary's natural, it is the most natural thing in the world, in Mary's natural tendency to cling to the one she loves, who she thought was gone and now has returned, a thing that she never thought possible, she wanted to cling, but Jesus says, do not cling, do not hold on to me, go and tell people about me. For Jesus, before he died, told his disciples that I am going to go away and prepare a place for you. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and I am going to come back and I'm going to take you to that place with me. And so now we're in that period where Jesus has gone away and he sent his Holy Spirit and we are to go and we are to tell. But do you see a, a theological important reality in the text? That even when you recognize Jesus, it is possible to miss what you're to do about Jesus. That even when Mary recognized Jesus, it is possible to recognize Jesus and miss what you are to do about it. What now? And what are we to do, those who of us who have followed Jesus? We are on mission, a mission to show the world the reality and the beauty of Jesus. For he has come to defeat sin and death forever. And one day he will return and institute the end of all evil in this world. And we are in that time when Jesus has gone away, John 14, 2, to prepare a place for us. And we are in that period of time when John, Jesus has sent to us the promised Holy Spirit to empower us for the mission of, Jesus, of, of telling the world of the reality of Jesus, John 16, verse 7. And one day Jesus is going to return and take us to that place that he is preparing for us now. John chapter 14, verse 3. And in the meantime, our goal is not to just insulate ourselves and cling to Jesus and his reality in a bomb shelter with our Bible. 
The reality is we are to go into a world that is lost and hurting and broken and represent as the ambassadors of Christ the message of hope and joy and reconciliation. And I want you to notice in the text something so wonderful that even though it's possible to recognize Jesus and not recognize what we are meant to do about it, the what now, it's never too late to change. For Mary clings, Jesus gently reproves. And what does she do? She lets go and she goes and tells. For it is never too late to recognize our part in the mission of proclaiming the good news that Jesus has died and risen from the dead. This morning, as we just begin this series, What Now? on the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And I'm so excited to talk to you more about all the experiences that Jesus had with those he loved and cared about during those 40 days after he had died and risen from the dead. This morning, as we go and we move, and I want to close us in prayer in just a second before uh, you have a time of reflection as the song is played and as you reflect on what Jesus has done for us and his his resurrection reality, I want to remind you, no matter where you sit this morning, and I know that's probably your living room, but I mean it not uh, physically, I meant it, you know, metaphorically, that no matter where you sit this morning, if you're in a place where you do not recognize Jesus, he longs to make himself known, and he might be right there next to you, you know, in a figurative sense. His presence is right there, even if you don't recognize it, and it's possible. And second, and second, Jesus appears to all kinds of people in all kinds of different ways. And while my story may not be your story, he's still making himself known to people. And last, if you've seen his beauty, show it and tell it to the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love, and we pray that the post-resurrection reality of Jesus might transform our hearts and minds so that it might transform through us the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.